Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor and sports gambler Matt Damon. For those of you who saw this week's episode on TV, well, yes, that is me, sitting across from Matt, humiliatingly dressed head to toe in a Red Sox uniform, having lost a bet to Matt when my beloved Dodgers lost in the World Series for the second year in a row. And for those of you listening to this, well, you just have to imagine my shame. For as long as Matt Damon can remember, he wanted to be an actor. So much so that he started his college essay with those very words. But before all the accolades and success, Matt was just a kid from Cambridge, Massachusetts, who loved playing sports and watching movies. His chances of becoming a pro athlete came up short, both literally and figuratively. But he was determined to make a career out of acting after the seed was planted by an influential theater teacher and nurtured by his best friend and fellow cinephile, Ben Affleck. They had no roadmap for success, but Matt and Ben had an advantage over their teenage peers. They just wanted it more. They would take the train down from Boston to New York regularly for auditions, using money drawn from their communal acting bank account to cover expenses. Eventually, one of those auditions turned out to be a small part in the 1988 Julia Roberts film, Mystic Pizza. But Matt's big break proved to be elusive. He auditioned for the eventual Academy Award winner Dead Poets Society, but was rejected in favor of Ethan Hawke. And the cruel reality of the industry smacked him in the face when he was working at the local movie theater that summer. As he says, I went from the possibility of being in this great film to the guy tearing the movie ticket and watching people come out crying because they're so moved by the performance. That's the range in this business. Well, Matt and Ben decided to take fate into their own hands and write a great film that they could both star in. That was how Goodwill Hunting and the acclaimed acting careers of Matt and Ben came into being. It's been 20 years since that film and his career, as you well know, is still going strong. As our first two-time guest, Matt joins off-camera to talk about his acting midlife crisis, the gamble that almost cost Matt and Ben Goodwill Hunting, the invaluable wisdom he's gained from directors, and why the Boston Red Sox, and specifically Fenway Park, carry so much significance from him. You don't have to rub it in, Matt. I get it. So pull up a chair and listen in. All right. <laughs> wow. So here we are. You're here feeling pretty are. good about yourself, aren't you? Well, I, I, you know, I like to think I'm a good gambler. <laughs> I, I make bets that I have a high probability of winning. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I am guilty of loving my Dodgers so much that I just assumed yeah. they would beat the Red Sox, and I made this incredibly stupid wager with you. Yeah. Which was. Which was one of us was going to put on a full uniform, and 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 when the, the bet they, it started to get really good when the shit talking went back and forth, and you were like, and it, they're going to be cleats, cleats, <laughs> and I went, oh man. <laughs> so to hear you clicking around in your office here, yeah. it's been really nice, and yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I I I feel vindicated. My socks came through for me. It was a yeah. the, the, what a team though. That is like a historically good team. I mean, they won more games than any Red Sox team ever had. So that's saying something because we've been around for over a hundred years. Well, that's true. But people, you know, who watch this show closely notice that in the credits since the very beginning of the show, I thank Vin Scully every yes. episode. <laughs> and so this is particularly I, I grew up with the Dodgers and. Uh, Yes, and I really had visions of you sitting there in Dodger blue. Which I would have, I, I would have done it. You know, a, a bet is a bet, and the and the best team deserves to be honored by anybody who bet against it. Well, listen, um, I, listen, listen. I, I'm I, glad I can give you a little joy. I know well, your life is, you know, fraught with misery. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, well, I mean, I think first of all, first of all, I'm the first repeat off-camera guest. That's true. Which I'm very proud that of. That is true. That this precipitated that Well, if there was going to be a repeat. And, and we're talking about the Red Sox. So, like, everybody but, like, four people from Boston just turned this thing off. <laughs> so we can say anything. Are you saying we only have four viewers from Boston? <laughs> Might be true. <laughs> no, it's like at the game the other day, I, I went to the to game five and, and was with Ben Affleck. And, and I just, you know, there were so many Boston people in the stands. And at the end of the game, we must have taken a thousand pictures, and people were just 
but the but the Boston way of coming and taking a picture is like Matt Ben South Shore South Shore. And you're like, <laughs> oh yeah, where you from, Hull? Hang on, where you from, Quincy? And they just come. They don't. It's just South Shore. It's just a given. You're taking a picture with me. I'm from the South Shore. Yeah. <laughs> North Shore, Ben. North Shore. Where you from, Gloucester? You know, <laughs> we're just a very particular weird. Well, what is that? Why do you think Boston engenders such like passionate sports fans? Because it is true that that I think guys, especially from Boston, they are they're just they they live and breathe it. Yeah, um, I think I, I suspect and I wonder if it'll change because there was a huge change in the psyche of everybody from there in 2004, like that you could you should never underestimate because there was a deep I felt this like personally, and I've talked to other people about it. Nobody knew anybody who was alive when we'd won. I bet right. you, because you, your identity is wrapped up in your team, and you and you and you go. We don't win. We 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 come close, and we try really hard, but we don't. And there's this thing about never winning and, and getting heartbroken. I mean, heartbroken. You know, all through my childhood, all through my my father. I mean, going back generations, right? And um, and when we won, I mean, I, I went, I rented a car with, with Lucy. We weren't married yet. It was 2004. And we went up to Boston. And they did, you know, the parade through town on, on the duck boats that ends at the Charles River. And my dad wanted to go down to the river. So he and he took my nephews and I think Lucy and they went down to the river. But I wanted to see them up on Boylston Street before they got to the river. So I went up to Boylston Street and then down to the river to see them twice. So I was by myself on Boylston Street and 34 years old and the boats went by and I just started to cry. Really? Fucking swear to God. Like quietly cry. Like a, like just tears streaming down my face out of some weird... And it was like this thing got lifted. And you it, never believed that you would see that? No. No, I hoped, right? We hoped desperately and passionately every year. The year before, 2003, was when Aaron Boone hit the home run. That's right. It was devastating. And in 2004, Casey Affleck and I went to one of the playoff games in New York. We went to game two against the Yankees. And I remember walking in. We had our Red Sox hats on and and the fans going, oh, good luck tonight. And I remember being so offended, right? Like, you don't even think you're wishing me luck because you think we're so not a threat to your dynasty that like, oh, little fella, <laughs> maybe you'll get a win. Is that, is that sort of like, like... And it's that chip on the shoulder thing. They have yeah. it in Philadelphia too, right? Like similarly sized cities. It's why you have, I think, such rabid fans. And going back to your original question, like it's, it's, the weather's not great, right? The cities, are, the cities are kind of dwarfed by this big brother to either the north or the south of New York. Yeah. You know, and so you take on these teams as this... You know, it's like where you're from. It's this stuff. This is the stuff that matters. And like when I was a kid, you'd go to Fenway Park and you would just see fights. Like there were just the bleacher seats were like three bucks, and people were just in there like all summer long, like getting a tan, drinking beer, fucking fighting someone. <laughs> you know, it was like. So I think the rabid obsession I had with baseball got curtailed by the Red Sox 14 years ago when they won. Yeah, and then and you it, were like, I was like. I'm okay. Like it's so, and like this year, <laughs> okay. honestly, honestly, like like people they, thought when you won the Academy Award, you were okay. N- no, no, no. It's the Red Sox. <laughs> it really is. The like this year, I was okay with them not winning, right? There was a kind so of so was like, I. <laughs> I know. <laughs> believe me. Believe me, I know. <laughs> But yeah, it's a different, I root in a different way. There's not a desperation to it anymore. Right, right. It's not the girl of your dreams who's unattainable now. It's like you've married the woman of your dreams and you're just... And you're like, get me a beer. (laughs) (laughs) From the South Shore, hon. (laughs) (laughs) Now, did you play baseball growing up? Yes. You did? Yeah. Was that your sport? Yeah, yeah. When I was a a little boy, definitely. I mean, like, Pete Kohansky and I could do the, the full lineup of the Red Sox. When we played together, we would one would be the Yankees, one would be the Red Sox, and we knew the, the Wait, know, who, Mickey Rivers. Pete Kohansky. Pete Kohansky, yeah, who lived across the street from me when I was little. And, uh, and we knew those lineups back to front. We'd do either of them, lefties and righties, and everyone had, seemed to have a real signature stance. Um, you know, Pudge Fisk. I mean, we wrote about Pudge Fisk and Goodwill Hunting because it was like a part of our 
life, you know, a part of a big part of our of our lives. And, and was there a period when you're like, I'm going to be a baseball player? Yeah, I mean, by the time I was like 12, it had switched to basketball because I'd moved into a set, moved to Cambridge, and 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 it was all basketball. So there, so as a probably up until I was around, but I was still playing little league and stuff. But but I think I think I was 12 when I announced to my father that I was going to be a uh, a basketball player. Really? I said I'm playing five six hours a day. I'm like you know I'm the best in my class. I'm gonna. And uh, and then he explained my favorite player was Tiny Archibald, and and he explained Tiny was called Tiny because he was six one, and I, he, he goes I'm the tallest Damon to ever evolve at five <laughs> ten. So you so I so I picked a new obsession which was which was acting. Okay, so I want to get to that, but I'm I'm curious if your dad and you like did a lot of sports stuff together. Like, oh my God, yeah, yeah. Like how did that was how you we got related. your parents yeah, got was divorced early. Guy. Yes. And so how would that work with with the time he got to spend with you? Would he? Sp- well, like, what happened was he every we were with him on Tuesday nights and every other weekend, and I just he would like everything was mapped out. Like our time with him was just it was never idle. It was like we're going to Cold Springs Park. We're gonna do that. We're gonna get you know get your glove you know. And it was just and it was that. That's how we we, we, we we you know all right we're having BP like that's that's what we're doing. It, it, we just it was a really active. Uh, and it was always really fun. And he would have like a week to plan what he was going to do with us. I, I had a great childhood. You know, I had a great uh, relationship with, with each parent, you know, very different. But yeah, yeah. Tell me how they were different. Like, like if you would go off and do all that with your dad, was your mom's approach to like child rearing and everything like radically different? Like, no, I mean, they both fundamentally, I think, loved the shit out of us. You know what I mean? And we always felt that there was never a moment where that was in doubt. But there were the, and I was a kind of a classic latchkey kid, you know. Um, you know, my mom was a professor, and so she, she was at work a lot of the time. I'd come home from school and let myself in the house, and I'd have been given probably two dollar or a dollar, you know, to go get a bag of chips or a soda or something, and and go to the park and and play basketball, and uh, and uh, you know, she would, you know, she'd get home at five or something. But you know, I was kind of on my own. Uh, until then, my brother and me, right? Um, you know, but and 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 they didn't observe like they observed the Tuesday night and every other weekend. That was like clockwork. But there were other times, you know, if I had a baseball game or if I, you know, my dad was, you know, any family event, everyone was there. And so at twelve, when you switched, you decided to switch to basketball, and then, um, and you were about to say that you discovered acting. How did you discover that you loved performing and? Well, I think my mother would. T- she's a professor of early childhood development. She said she knew when I was two that I was going to do that. Like Why? I just because of my love of fantasy play and dressing up. Like, you know, I don't. You, you have a dress up box with your kids, right? <laughs> and, and for you too. Um, and this is I something was just, other than love, right? <laughs> this is obligation. This is obligation. <laughs> it's duty. It's good. Good. Good thing to teach the kids. Uh, but yeah, I. Uh, I, I was always just playing, you know, role-playing just as a kid. I just loved, you know, making up stories and acting them out. Um, still do. And so, like, at what age were you like, oh, I'm going to actually pursue this? Like, how did you know how to do it? And Well, we, we, there was, a, at the high school I went to, they had, a, they had like, this state-of-the-art theater. It was, like, a 750-seat theater. Like, when I, I did a play in London um, 15 years ago, and, and I remember going in, and they go, it's a big theater, it's, you know, it's 800 seats or whatever, and I'm like, you know, it's about the size of my high school. Like, um, I, you know, we had this unbelievable drama department and this really special teacher who changed my life, changed Ben's life, Casey's life. He was just one of those one in a million human beings who's just put on the earth with this incredible gift. He just was such a great teacher, and... Um, and that and that really gave us a focus for for you know what became that kind of obsession. So at what point did you did you sort of say okay I'm going to I'm going to be serious about this? I, it was like an obsession. I can't remember the moment. I just knew that it was everything I wanted in the in the world. I mean, were you an avid movie watch? Like did you Ben and I would go to movies together and we'd watch them and we'd talk about them and you know, by the time I was 16 and he was 14, we were going to New York. Um, and auditioning for stuff uh, together, or sometimes if one of us got called back and the other didn't by ourselves. And did you, you know, have agents at that point? I, yeah, Ben had an agent, and he introduced me to his agent, Chuck Saussier, in uh, 
from Carson Adler and uh, Nancy Carson, who's still an agent um, uh, in New York. And so we had, in high school, we had New York agents. It's really weird. Like, we talk yeah. about, like, nobody in our family was in entertainment. Like, we weren't even in an entertainment city. We didn't know anybody, right? It, it was just like we fed off each other's obsession. These two weird kids, you know what I mean? And we would go, we were really driven and really disciplined about it. Like we'd go, you know, go to New make money. We had a joint bank account. The, uh, the, the, it was a Baybanks card and, and the code was River P because we admired River Phoenix and we liked the choices that he made. Really? And so the bank card, it was River P was, was how you access. And we had a few hundred bucks in there, whatever we made, local commercials, local voiceovers, any job we could get, we'd put the money in the account and that account was only for trips to New York for him and me or video games after school. If we went to the arcade, you could go and get like 10 bucks worth of quarters. And that was, and that was, that was how we rolled. Like, and, and my essay to get into college, I remember. I mean, it said, for as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be an actor. That was the first line. I mean, it was, I, I, I really, and it was great to know what you wanted to do. You know what I mean? I remember yeah. all my friends panicking at the end of college, and I felt genuine uh, sorrow for them. I was like, God, what that must feel like. Where did you get your sense of how to manage and strategize and go after what you wanted. I think my one skill is that I'll outwork anybody. You know, like I'll work harder, especially at that age, right? Where, you know, so certainly starting out, like I was, Ben and I would go to auditions where kids would be there with their parents, like their mom was making them go because their mom had some unrealized fantasy about doing it and was trying to live it through the kid, right? Like, I'm going to beat that guy. I want it way more than him, right? So, so you start to... You know, and then the, and then as you get more gain more experience auditioning, you get better at it, and you start really to get feedback from, you know. So you, while it's a total feast or famine business, like you, like, like a great example being Dead Poet Society. Okay, Ben and right. I got close on that. Right, we both auditioned, we both got called back, we both. Oh, you did. Yeah, and we read that, and I was like, this is a fucking amazing movie, and I was probably seventeen or eighteen, and. I mean, it was like, oh my God, and it's Robin Williams, like this movie's incredible. We didn't get it. We ended up having the summer job of working at the Janus Theater in Harvard Square, which doesn't exist anymore, but it played one fucking movie the entire summer, and it was Dead Poet Society. So you go from the possibility of being in the movie to the guy tearing the ticket and watching people come out crying because they're so moved. Right. And, and watching Ethan Hawke. And just watching blow. Ethan Hawke fucking get nominated for an Academy Award, right? And yeah. it's like, wow, like that's the range of possibility for you if you go into that business. Um, but having said that, we did get called back, right? So the business was telling us, hey, you know, it didn't work out this time, but you're doing some, some things right. And so the business is kind of telling you, stay, keep trying, keep plugging away. You know, and then you need to get extraordinarily lucky, which is, you know, it's like when Primal Fear came along and everyone knew. I mean, I literally spent money on a, on a, on a, uh, a uh, dialect coach that I didn't have because there were two different dialects in the movie. And I was like, I, I got to work on this. And cut, because it was clear that whoever got that role was going to blow up. And that was one of the things that was really the impetus behind Ben and I writing Goodwill Hunting and, and, and focusing on it was because when Primal Fear, when Edward Norton got Primal Fear, we went like, fuck, like, there's not going to be another one of those that's going to come around. Like, we got to do our own thing. Like, what are the odds that a movie with that good a role is going to make it all the way through the ranks of known actors and then get thrown to the wolves and all of us are going to fight for that scrap and one of us will get it. Like, you know. So you looked at the numbers and you're like, yeah, this, this ain't going to work. <laughs> when those things would happen, would you ever take it personally or get down on yourself or oh, wonder if you're missing a piece? No, I, it wasn't self-doubt. It was frustration at the, at the system because the system is not built for you to succeed. You, 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 know, you have to break through it. It's there to keep you from succeeding. And there are all these pitfalls. I saw so many actors, drugs, so many actors. So, you know... There's a lot of idle time with that life. 
And yeah, I was going to ask you that when when you said I was out, I would outwork everybody. Would you find like that you were flummoxed by how do I outwork people? Like how do I fill my time? I have so much energy. And I want to do this, and what should I be doing? That's part of the struggle. Is there isn't really a road map to like how to how to use your time productively, right? You got to kind of make it up, um, but. But yeah, no, it was normally in the context of, well, eventually it was writing the screenplay, but, it, but normally in the context of like preparing for an audition. And what's interesting, being on the other side of the table now, like if somebody comes in and isn't off book, it's very unlikely that they're gonna get the part. Right. And there are other people coming in who've got the shit down as if they're gonna shoot it that day, right? And they're definitely in the conversation if they're good, right? If you're, if, if you're Fumbling your way through it, which I've done, you know, um, you know, you, you get the you sides at the last still? minute. You do, you do, you see that. Um, like, there's nothing. You know, there was a whole kind of style of like mumbling acting and stuff. Like that, you know, when we were kids, you know, because everyone had idolized Brando. Right. But it's like you better be Brando if you do that shit because like yeah, because like not knowing your lines and needing cue cards is like is not is not a way to get a job. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you think you may be depressed, or if you're feeling anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed, BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are trained to listen and to help. Now, with BetterHelp, you can talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, such as, you know, anxiety, depression, grief. They deal with relationships, sleep disorders, LGBT matters, self-esteem, family conflict, and more. They can give you access to help that may not be available in your area. So what you do is you fill out a questionnaire and it helps assess your specific needs and you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. And then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages. Everything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. So join the million plus people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp is an affordable option for therapy, and our listeners get 10% off the first month with the discount code CAMERA. You can get started today at BetterHelp.com CAMERA. That's BetterHelp.com CAMERA. Now back to the show. I can imagine having been, having a friend go through that with you would be a huge way to, like I, I would imagine being an actor is a lonely thing and when things aren't working out and you can't bounce off your friend why it didn't work or hear from that person when you're feeling lower. Like, yeah, because it's a, it's a business that just rejects you. It right. just fucking rejects you constantly. Like constantly you're getting rejected and you have to be impervious to that. Ben and I used to call it getting okay thanks, right? Like, hey, how'd it go today? I got okay thanks. Because you'd go in and you'd, you'd act your heart out in some, you know, for some scene, for something, and they go, okay, thanks. And that's it. And now you're in two fucking hours of traffic in your shitty car because you live way out of town. And how that's hard all did you, you work for, on that Yeah, whatever, part. three days, you know, yeah. like whenever I got the script, I'm working on it, I'm, you know, okay, thanks. And you're like, oh, motherfucker, you know, and it's like, okay, that's, that's the deal. And so you go home and you could laugh about it. There was somebody to like, fucking, you could make fun of yourself as a way, as a coping mechanism and somebody could laugh with you or like make fun of you or, but you know what I mean? It was like, it made it okay. It wasn't the end of the world that you got okay, thanks. It was just a fucking bummer. You know did what you I guys mean? go up against each other very often? All the time. Yeah. And, and how did that work when someone got it and someone didn't? Was we there were, ever that situation? Yeah, yeah. Mystic Pizza, one of the first things ever. The, my one line in Mystic Pizza, Ben and I were the only two people who auditioned for it. Are you serious? <laughs> it was a local casting person from Boston. Uh, K- Carolyn Pickman and Patty Collins were this, College Pickman was this uh, casting agency in Boston. And, and they got that show 
which was down in Connecticut. And so they called Ben and me because we would go in there constantly. They go, take the train, get on the Amtrak. So Ben and I took the train to Mystic, and it was one line. You know what I mean? So right. they were like, one of these two kids will get it. And we went in and did the reading, and it turned out we were both. They said we're both good, but I was 17 and he was 15, and so the the, the it was a night shoot, <laughs> so it so it went to me because I could work through the night legally, like if my mom was there. So my mom came with me, and it was three nights of shooting this dinner table scene in Mystic Pizza, and it was like I was like I just saw a star. It was so fucking great. It was so great. I mean, now I'd be like, why the fuck is this taking three nights to shoot this? We don't need that shot. You don't need that. That's a total waste of time. I'm not, you know, but, but I was just like, so the lights, the camera, I mean, the whole thing, I was just so like, oh my God, this is what I want to do forever. And were you coming home, Ben was like, tell, tell me all oh, about yeah, it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, you know. I think it's really impressive that you guys supported each other like that, you know, and that you probably probably benefited from that more than you knew at the time. Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be here had it, were it not for him. And people would always say, well, who, who wrote more of the screenplay? Or what did you write and what did he write? And I go, it's just half. Like, I can't, I can't, the, the, I can't remember the genesis of every line because we both wrote every line. It's like, I'd say something, then he'd say something, then that would make me say something, that would make him say something. And then we both sit there for a minute and go, huh, that's that line. You know what I mean? So there wasn't any trying to sell the other guy. No, this is funny because, right? Because then you're fucked. Right. Right. And, right. Then, and then you are going to be at loggerheads. Like, if you don't think the same things are funny, Ben and I just fucking grew up together. So I know exactly what makes him laugh, and he knows exactly what makes me laugh. And, 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 a, and a lot of the writing process for me was social. It was like it was sitting with somebody and doing this and, like, right. you know, just shooting the shit and like and make trying to make them laugh you know and 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 it just it was really fun what was the hardest thing about about that whole process i mean i think you know taking it in turnaround from castle rock to miramax that was really scary like having it done and then and then realizing how hard it is to get it made once you love it and yeah i mean just realizing that once you sell it that doesn't mean it's getting made like once you know you can you know, and, and, and the kind of glacial pace that movies kind of go out, you know, when you're a hungry young kid, it's right. like really unsatisfying. You're like, come on, let's go, guys. Let's go. Let's do this. You know, and and, uh, um, and the, the, the whole industry just moves so much slower. So that was really frustrating, taking it out of and, 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 and risking losing it. You know, we were risking losing the movie by taking it out because if we didn't set it up, somewhere it had like a million dollars against it and with us starring in it then they got it back and they could remove us oh so there was a chance if there you, was a, once you took it back that if you didn't sell it was it, a chance that they gambled on they thought we weren't going to be able to sell it and we almost couldn't everyone we went to said no so was the message we like your script but we think we have a better chance making money if we cast somebody else so hopefully we can get you guys off of it? Well, or? it was, no, it was, we totally believe in you guys. We bought it f- to make it with you. We, we signed on, on for that, but we had a dispute about the director. Um, they had someone in-house that they wanted to do it. And we said, if we end up there, that's fine, but you promised that you'd take it out to these kind of A-list directors, and we really think we'll get one. And for them, kind of internally, politically, it just, it, it was too thorny, and they went, okay, I'll tell you what, if you can t- go do that somewhere, then you have our blessing. But... If not, we get it back, and he gets to direct it with whoever he wants in those roles. And so that was a really scary, because we almost stayed there and made it with him. Um, and, and uh, you know, he may have done a wonderful job with it, you know, it, it, but we rolled the dice. That was a big one. That was a big... Do you remember that conversation with Ben? Yeah, I remember right where we were. We were living up on Glencoe Way up in Hollywood, by the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, it was really about the fundamental choice of compromising or going for it completely. And it, we had absolutely everything of our creative lives at stake. Yeah. Uh, and, and we went for it. Can you pinpoint what made you in that room not? Like, because obviously, if, we, if you had, if you had let it. this guy direct it. It could have worked out. Right. Right. And, and that was the calculus, right? It's like, it's not that he's going to make a bad movie. 
It's that what did we do all of this for? Like, what did we do all of this for? It was to try to make that thing, right? I find that fascinating. I feel like most people at that point would be like, we won. I mean, I don't know what I would tell my own kids to do in that situation, right? Right. Um, but we believed in it and we believed in ourselves. We, 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 we just did, you know? And, and, and the idea of living with a compromise at that point just was like untenable. God, it's it could have gone so badly for us because, like I said, the people, we also had that conversation in the context of like, look, it was a bidding war last year. People are going to come back to it. They're going to want it. And when we went to all the people who had bid on it, it was like, I'm oh, sorry, you should have come with us last year. It was fucking brutal, dude. We left those meetings like, oh, my God, we're going to lose the movie. It makes you wonder about the mentality of this town when, when there was a whole bidding war and then when it comes back around the second time, people assume, oh, this must be tainted. There must be uh, something wrong with it. Right, right, yeah, right. It got put in turnaround. Well, maybe it's these, you know, thinking about now, maybe they go, well, it's these two guys. You got to do it with these guys. Or, you know, hey, these guys thought they were big shots last year. Like, <laughs> Let me show you what yeah. we do with big shots in this <laughs> town. <laughs> we, we put them right through the sausage grinder. Well, you know, it's, it's funny to because I feel like this must be your experience, is that when you hear your history told back to you, I'm sure all that time gets compressed. Oh, yeah, to yeah. You, you came oh. out from Boston, you wrote Goodwill Hunting, and then you're up and on we the stage. We were overnight successes. I remember Ben and I being so kind of taking umbrage with this idea that we were overnight successes. Like, like Goodwill Hunting came out, I was 27. I'd been in the Union since I was 16, like trying to, you know, going to New York, trying to get, you know. Right. And it made me wonder if, if there were times where you did get something, you booked a film or something, and then thought, oh, now I've made it, and then you, you find yourself six months later and... Well, yeah, School Ties was a great example of that. Like, School Ties, Ben and I did that. I was 20, I turned 21 on School Ties. I had my first legal beer on School Ties. But I, fi I figured I'm a lead in a feature. You know, it's Stanley Jaffe and Sherry Lansing. Like, they did taps. Right. You know, I, I'm, this is it. Like, they, we're the new taps guys, you know. And did you sort of count your chickens at that point a little I bit? I think we all did. It's, whether we really? said it out loud or not, I think we all were kind of like, this is it. We're all going to blow up. Um, and then, you know, and then, this, then the movie didn't do particularly well. Um, you know, and it was another, gosh, another year or two before I worked. I did Geronimo. A, a and now Geronimo, now, now Geronimo, okay, it's a, I'm the lead with Jason Patrick, who was coming off of Rush, right? right? Like the most dynamic young actor out there, you know, and, and my two fucking heroes, Gene Hackman and, and Robert Duvall, with Wes Studi playing Geronimo, right? I was like, this thing's going to be huge. <laughs> right. And that tanked. So what do you think after something like that tanks? Did you ever have that anxiety of like, oh, maybe I've had my chances and now people are like, oh, it doesn't work with him? I mean, yeah, I always. I mean, you, can't, you kind of constantly have that. And then you're kind of getting, you know, because every, everybody shines you on, you know, it's a very, uh, people aren't in your face about your failures necessarily. So sometimes you have to see, it's like, you know, it's like you have to hear about it through, you know, I remember watching, it was, they were doing some show and it was like right after Rounders opened. Right. And they were like, he's one of the hottest actors. And it was like, yeah, Damon. And then it was like, and Rounders, which was a box office bomb. And I'm like, oh, it bombed? <laughs> like, I didn't know. Everyone's telling you, no, it's great, <laughs> It's <kid."> fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then you go, oh, okay, well, that's the real world, at least. That's somebody, that's, that's an objective opinion. Right. Um, you have to sort of like, Pick your people that you can really trust, and yeah, yeah. Well, and I think you, you know, you you try to have your primary relationships not get infected by that other, right? Because that'll if then you your dynamic, you're completely fucked. Like you're not in a real relationship. Yeah. You mentioned Gene Hackman a second ago, and and I I did want to ask you when you watch great actors that you admire, especially coming up when you were trying to figure out what was going on, like what you were defining as great acting. Like, what did you see that those people did where you're like, that's it, that's the real deal, how do I get there? It's a feeling for me, but it's, but it's, but it's like, if it's interesting and believable. Sidney Pollack told me a great story about, 
working for Stanley Kubrick and, and he, on Eyes Wide Shut, and he, did, and he promised that he wasn't going to crack. He was like, you know, I'm gonna, I don't care if it's 100 takes, I'm going to hang in there. And he was doing a scene, and he, he was on like take 78, and he lost it. And he just turned to Kubrick, and he goes, I, Stanley, damn it. He goes, like, I've done all this research. I've done, what I did was real. That, is, that was real. And Stanley said, well, what you're not understanding, uh, Sidney, is that uh, real is good, interesting is better. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's, you know, it's like, so when I think, because I was obsessed with being believable my entire career, but I, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, you know. Yeah. Like, one of my favorite directing stories was Soderbergh, when we were doing The Informant. I did this, uh, I had to do this um, scene in a courtroom where I, was, where I was apologizing to the community. Right, yeah. And, and we, had the, we were in the real courtroom, we had the transcript of what he said, and all the actors assembled there, were all these other characters, and, and I got up, and it's you know, eight in the morning, and he's, it's, there's a, he's shooting a master, and it's this apology that this guy made. And so I said it, and I did it, and I got kind of choked up, and I, I, I was trying not to, but I was, and I, and I just hear at the end of it, cut, and Stephen just walks over, and I'm at the defendant's table, and Stephen just walks over and just kind of leans up against the table and goes, no. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he's like, no. I'm like, fuck you, dude. That was real. That shit just happened. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not out here pulling faces. Like, that was some genuine shit that just happened, buddy. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, I'm not saying that. He goes, you're just, you're in the wrong movie. I go, oh, okay. Well, get me in the right movie. And he, go, and he thinks for about 10 seconds, which for him is about a lifetime, and he just kind of goes, do it like an awards acceptance speech. And instantly, I was like, you know, this guy's you know, kind of a narcissist. This character, you know, this is like, of course. It's his moment. This is it. Everybody's here. This is fantastic, right? Right. And it was one sentence of direction that completely changed everything. And also just helped me with the whole rest of the piece, right? Through Like for the next 40 days we were working or 30 days we were working, it was just helped me lock into what we were doing. But absent that director, I would have gone home feeling great about myself and the work that I'd done that day because it had been real. And right. So I learned a lot that day. Like I think when I got into the business, I thought acting was everything. I thought the world revolved around the acting process. And... The more I've done it, the more I feel like it's it's f- filmmaking, and like it's it, like the way Soderbergh works. All of the energy is is at around the front of the camera. All of it is projected at the front of the camera. There's none of this. Like he calls like you know the video village where uh, the producers sit. He calls that he calls those people energy vampires. <laughs> so he has no he has no video village. There's no playback. He's got the camera. He looks through the the lens. He's directing, operating, editing, and he's the cinematographer, and. And, and all of the, mo- they're the momentum that that creates is just really electric and really, and really fun. And, and, um, and so I, I guess, like, understanding my part of that, rather than the whole thing being about me, it's actually I'm a part of this machine, helps me be a more efficient kind of team member, right? And I really yeah. do see it as like a team, like, a, like you need everybody. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Green Chef. What is Green Chef, you ask? Well, Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company that makes eating well easy and affordable with plans to fit every kind of lifestyle. So how Green Chef works is this. They let you choose from a wide array of easy to follow lifestyles with selected organic ingredients. Recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. Everything is hand-picked and delivered right to your door. And ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepped. And with Green Chef, there's something for everyone. It's easy to eat well and discover new recipes every week that you'll love to cook. You can switch up your meal plan whenever you're ready to try a new way to eat. And Green Chef is the most sustainable meal kit, offsetting 100% of its direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box. That's important because, truth be told, with all of these meal delivery services, there's a lot of packaging. 
and that's necessary to keep the food fresh and sanitary. But with Green Chef, they've really figured out a way to do it in an environmentally conscious way. And Green Chef's expert chefs design flavorful recipes for your lifestyle that go way beyond ordinary substitutions. You can enjoy clean ingredients that you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness. And they offer contactless delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking. So let Green Chef do the meal planning, grocery shopping, and most of the prep for you week after week. Recipes include pre-made measured sauces, dressings, and spices, so you can get more flavor in less time. So like I said at the beginning of this, Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company, and they make meals for a variety of lifestyles, including vegan, vegetarian, paleo, and keto. I've tried a number of these meal kits. I have a family. I cook at home a lot, and especially in the last six months, I've been cooking at home a ton. Green Chef makes it easy, the photographs are great, and they give you a real sense of what the meal should look like and how it is prepared. It's a great experience overall, and best of all, when you're throwing away that packaging, you don't have to feel guilty because of their environmental practices. So now let me tell you the very best part. For listeners of Off Camera, Green Chef is offering $80 off your first month subscription. Go to greenchef.com slash offcamera80 and use the code offcamera80 to get $80 off across four boxes, including free shipping on your very first box. That's greenchef.com slash offcamera80 and use the code offcamera80 for $80 off. Now back to the show. I, last night I watched uh, Talent of Mr. Ripley. Oh. I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theaters. Really? Yeah. Does it hold up? Not only does it hold up, between you, Jude Law, Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. and Gwyneth, you kind of feel like everyone went off and got really, really understood their own person. You know what I mean? Like when Philip Ho- comes on the scene. He's fucking incredible in that he's movie. Incredible. He's so good. And I remember talking to him about it like at the time when we were, we were rehearsing it. And his whole thing was Freddie Miles. He goes, he, he doesn't want to get ditched. He doesn't want to get ditched. He's a, terrified of getting ditched. Of like, and that's the whole thing that drives him, like coming back and looking for Dickie because he fucking ditched me, man. You know what I mean? Like, you say that, and I'm immediately, I think of, I think of uh, the informant, that one sentence. Right. Play it like an award speech. Right. And all of a sudden, the whole character opens up. And, and it is... It is, like, I would think, as an actor, you would love to find one sentence that lets you focus on exactly who this character is. Right. Do you look for those, like, little things? Sidney Lumet said that, you know, did you ever read Making Movies, the book that he wrote? It's fantastic. I, I haven't. It's, uh, it's great, and it's, uh, it's like a conversation. I mean, I've read it a couple times, and, um, but you'd, you'd really dig it. But one of the things he talks about is, he, is every movie, he, he, he boils them down to the kind of this elemental one sentence so that if he's ever lost that's kind of his touchstone and he goes back there to kind of you know to inform what he needs to do do you think in your prep you're also sort of looking for that that sentence or that elemental thing of of the character you're playing even if it's subconscious yeah yeah it's more it's definitely more subconscious i've never written it down or 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 articulated it you're like Um, a feeling like you what what you describe it seems like it's it's much more intuitive than it is like procedural for you yeah definitely which which you know which means sometimes it doesn't work do you have kind of in some way start from zero on every film a little bit in terms of just trying to get a feeling of it yeah and it was weird you know i took two years off before and i just worked again and um the first day (laughs) i was on set yeah, two years is a long yeah, time. It's a long time, and 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 the first day that I was on set, I was in these pants, and I hadn't, I'd kind of been avoiding the fact that I was going to work, so I didn't take the pants and break them in, and I had a cowboy hat on. It didn't feel comfortable on my head, and I had cowboy boots that I hadn't broken in. It was like, and. I was walking, we were shooting out at Willow Springs and it was a hundred and something degrees. And I was now this is for Ford versus Ferrari, yeah, for you're Ford playing Carol Ferrari. Shelby. Yes, yes. Right. And I walked and on my way to set, I just thought, this is really dumb. <laughs> this is a really stupid thing to do. <laughs> like what I do, what I chose to do with my life is really stupid. <laughs> what am I doing? Why am I wearing these fucking boots? This is really dumb. And I, where it was coming from, this insecurity, because I'd come out of this really 
hard couple years where I'd lost my dad and, you know, and, and, and I'd spent the last year in the fucking hospital with him and, and, and then we just took off and went to Australia um, and uh, Lucy and I with the kids, and, which was great, but I, I was playing a guy who could sell you anything. I mean, Carol Shelby, he was this bigger than life guy, right? And could sell, you know, you know, could sell anything to anybody. And, uh, and that wasn't how I was feeling, right? Right. I was feeling a lot more fragile than that and a lot more kind of, you know, I'd kind of gone through this existential crisis with my dad and, and, and his end of life stuff. And so, so I think that was kind of beneath that feeling of this is stupid was like, I'm scared. I can't do this. Yeah. And I haven't felt like that in a while. You just shined a light on what actors go through a lot, which is the days you have to be the exact opposite of where you are in your real life. Right. And then you, you do feel like you're lying, right? Right. And that's the one thing that I've always, like the performances or not, I, I've always felt what the person was feeling. And that's always been my true north, right? I've never had to... But what I thought to myself was, fuck, this guy probably had days where he didn't feel like he could sell shit to anybody. You know what I mean? And, and maybe this is just one of those days for him. And you're going to feel better tomorrow, you know? So was that totally an internal conversation? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, I think that's what was underneath it, was, was genuine, genuine insecurity. Right. Which of, uh, you know... By the time, like, I haven't experienced that in so long because by the time you get to set, all of the work that's gone in is to mitigate that feeling, right? You don't get, to, you don't get surprised when you get to work, you know? You get to work knowing exactly how it's going to go down and you're ready for it. It's like, it's like a game, you know? You've prepped for everything that's going to happen and yet that feeling, it was like so internal and deep, you know? And the and the you know the you know the 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 loss of my dad was like fucking you know it it it's it's still it's something I'll deal with forever for the rest of my life but but um but it kind of came out in that way and you know well I wanted to ask you about that because what I hear you saying is that here was something that was always this solid thing from you and then it's gone and then you're like well I'm a guy in the world now like did it did it change your fundamental way that you yeah. have a relationship with the world yeah yeah yes and and really made me think about the kind of father that I want to be you know and that was behind the 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 going to Australia I remembered every shitty camping trip that we went on like to some like two dollar you know you know, campground, you know, where we got bitten up by mosquitoes, all this stuff, like all of these memories. And so I said to Lucy, like, I want to, let's make memories. Like that was this, so we went on this like walkabout, like, and went down to, you know, uh, Australia and we did five massive camping trips. I mean, it was, it was awesome. It was fucking awesome. And, uh, but it was an active decision to kind of engage with the world in a different way. I wondered about that because I feel like one of the things they don't tell you about success is that the opportunities that come along are so great at a certain place in your life that it's like, how do you, how do you decide what to say yes to? How do you decide how to put a limit on something? And, and I imagine like losing your dad would have to affect the way you look at the way you spend your time and how fleeting life is and how right. long your kids are going to be young and, and engaged and all that stuff. Like, did you, was it sort of like a midlife crisis and a parenting thing and losing your dad all at once and, and you had to sort of like step back and look at what you'd done? Yeah, yeah. And then in concert with like the nature of movies changing too, right? So all that, you know, like where this, where technology has made DVDs obsolete, which means you don't get the, your theatrical release kind of backstopped by this other ancillary money. So it's changed the kind of movies that get made. And the ones they don't make anymore are the ones that I made, <laughs> you know? Um, and the ones that are getting made are these massive, big, you know, movies, and the bigger the movie, the, you know, it's got to play everywhere, and so the less nuance and the less... They want so, heroic, iconic moments that can be understood in any language and culture. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and 
And I would never have become an actor if that was the only thing available. I don't, you know, I'm not against it, but I don't want to just do that. I mean, that is, I can't, I can't do that. So yeah. I don't, which means I don't know what I'll do. I mean, maybe stuff, I don't know what I'll do. You know what I mean? Because I love my job. You, you know, we've talked about that over the years. I just, I do love it. And, and, but I don't love it enough that I would do it that I'd make a movie that I don't want to make. You know what I mean? Right. You know um, what I watched also? Uh, I, I did a little late night movie watching after the kids were to bed and I watched The Martian again and you hadn't made that when you came here the last time. Oh. And I think what we were just talking about, about films that can be large in character studies, that was a perfect example. And it makes you, it makes you wonder why when there's such massive successes on a financial and story and character level, why those films are so hard to find and make. Because that, that film is, that's one of the most entertaining, Thanks, you man. know, cross-genre films ever. And I wanted to ask you about it because it was unique in the sense that you did almost all your scenes alone. And I was just thinking, I wonder if the critical voice gets louder when you don't have another actor to act off of, to see their reactions, to get those subtle messages that this is working. It was a little different, but yeah. it, it was like, you know, because you feel something coming off another person, right? And, and, and you can, and that's, it's like this tangible thing, and you can feel it if it's working, right? You both right. can feel it. So there wasn't that, but there was Ridley, being, you know, and he had such a sh kind of a sure sense and hold on the movie and on the tone and on the, you know, and it was so, the first day I was, all the other actors had left and it was just me and I did the first kind of, I'm in the hab, I'm in, and I do this whole, I've, I've been stuck here, I've been left on Mars and my, right. my first kind of page and a half monologue. We do take one and the door cracks open and Ridley comes bounding in and he goes, Jesus Christ, we could shoot two movies at once, you and me. <laughs> so he was done, one done. take. That was it. So it's like that thing, you know, you plan for months and months and months and then it, then it's over. If you've planned right, like I remember with Good Will Hunting, the, my favorite story around that was with Ben on Good Will Hunting, Ben's big scene and where we're at the construction site and, we're, and he tells me he wishes that I would leave and that I'd just be gone and it's this beautiful scene that he has and, and we did the first take and Gus is like, okay, and Ben's like, what? Or, no, no, let's do another one and Gus goes, okay. We do another one and... Gus goes, yeah, okay, we're done. And Ben goes, no, 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 wait, I mean, one more. So we do it a third time, and it's great again. And Ben just looks at Gus, and then he looks at me, and, and I go, you're done. And it was just like he'd been waiting to do this for five years. Right. You know what and I mean? now that scene that you guys worked and reworked and storyboarded It was, it was over designed. in 12 minutes. It was just done forever. Conversely, like, I remember being so frustrated doing theater when I returned to it after doing movies because I, cause I would come off stage and feel like after, after what I felt was a great performance and I'd be elated for like four minutes and then I'd go, I gotta do this twice tomorrow. <laughs> like, why, why didn't we just shoot that? That was great, <laughs> you know what I mean? Now there's the risk, right, that you don't get it right yeah. and I've certainly been there, but by and large it's a it's a pretty efficient way to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, in The Martian, I feel like it was very important, I think, that he be us. He be who, what we would hopefully do in that situation. Yeah, like the smartest version of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And I saw a lot of you in that film. In this, and I realized, like, in a, lot of, in a lot of the great performances you've given, there is that thing of total believability, like you were saying, like it was real. And that's how you make a complete human being on screen. And then, like I was saying earlier, I also watched Ripley, and, and I felt like that was the exact opposite exercise. That was you having to be someone you are not at all. And there's a moment in Ripley uh, when you find out that you're going to get half of Dickie's trust, and you've sort of won. Like, I didn't imagine I'd get away with murder, and now I'm like getting away with half of Dickie uh -huh. Greenleaf's estate. The moment is so subtle in that, that piece of knowledge that comes over you that I don't think you do anything different with your face at all, but as a viewer, I'm watching you have this realization. And I wondered if you discovered at some point that all it took 
to convey something was to have a thought. Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the way I approach it. Like, I, I, I do want to think and feel what the character's thinking and feeling. Yeah. And I don't think about what comes out of me or how that expresses itself. You don't think, like, he's going to deliver a line and I have to, like, no. put an expression on my face no. that... No, I just think I have to listen to that person and take in that information, and I don't know what they're going to say to me. And then some random audience, a year later when the film comes out, feels that. Like Hopefully. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the mystery of what you yeah. do. Like, is well, it sort of mysterious It's a great to tool for empathy, right? It's, yeah. It's like we want to tell each other stories and, 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 and help each other. We want to understand each other, right? Do you remember the first time, not, not Mystic Pizza, but the first time you experienced watching yourself act where you had a, a big role, like the, the feeling of that? Yeah, I remember watching School Ties and there was a scene where I was walking with Ben and Cole Hauser and Randall Battenkoff and I went, geez, I'm short. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel short. I'm fucking short. Like, you know, those guys are way bigger than me. You you managed to legitimately surprise yourself. Mm -hmm. Like like the interior of the way you see things versus versus what thing what actually you know. And now I don't even. I mean, and now I've seen you know. I used to try to not watch because yeah. Well, I heard Al Pacino didn't watch, and so I wasn't going to watch. Right. And then as I got more interested in filmmaking. And realized that I could impact the thing more if I was looking at rough cuts. Right. And then as that extrapolated into as if I was if if I was helping with shots, if I was going like, well, you know, what would make this shot better? Well, why don't I do, you know, then I got really interested in the kind of the, you know, the lifting up the hood and looking at how things worked and yeah. got past the, 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 the vanity shit, you know. Because yeah. that's that's all that is. That's just, you know, vanity in the friend and I it's I think it's probably inescapable. The first times you see yourself, you, you, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of confronted with something that is probably a little different than what's in your mind's eye. This is why I won't ever watch this show. <laughs> I'm never, I'm just searing that into my memory. Oh, God, yes. You know, uh, it's... Uh, you know, can I t- I'll tell you something? Yeah. So, uh, well, the, the Red Sox, like, I... So in 1990, I slept out on the sidewalk to get standing room tickets um, for me and my dad to go see uh, the first round of the playoffs. We played the A's, and it was Roger Clemens was going to pitch against Dave Stewart. And my dad was a pitcher. He was a left-handed pitcher um, and uh, played through college at Syracuse. and, and, um, And he loved pitching. He just loved it. And so... I slept out with my roommates, and so we got our place in line, and we woke up to a moving line. We jumped up and moved along with our sleeping bags. And, you know, by the time I got to the ticket window, the last, uh, the last uh, Mike Chen, my roommate, got the last two tickets to the game one, which was Clemens versus Stewart, and I got game two tickets, and Mike Chen swapped with me. He was a great guy, Mike Chen, still is a great guy. So I took my dad to that game, and we lost because that's what the Red Sox do did. <laughs> you did in the in the playoffs and hopefully in the future do no 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 and uh, and so my dad you know my dad kind of died in slow motion and so we were you know we the last year of his life we moved back to Boston and and we were just in the hospital for a year so we had a lot of conversations and uh, and one of the things he said was he wanted some of his ashes to go to Fenway Park. And I said, do you want me to see if I could maybe get him, you know, to the pitcher's mound or whatever? And he he goes, I put him in the box seats. He goes, put him in the seats. He goes, I never made it on the field. He goes, you're going to get swept up with like the fucking peanuts and cracker jacks. He goes, I don't give a shit. (laughs) So I get a text from my brother during game one. And it was a picture of him and his two sons. And he said, I got this little spoonful of dad's ashes. But, I, you know, he and I had lived through this thing together. And he goes, I can't do this without you. And I said, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, we're in the World Series. You got the two best left-handed pitchers on the planet going against each other. And his two grandsons. 
Um, I said, just go for it. I said, I'm with you just like he is. And so that was, so that was, so this series had a lot of significance for us. So I hope that, that yeah. mitigates some of your pain in wearing that, that, uh, that jersey. Cause he, he, because this team, you know, this team, incredible team. Like, I watched probably every game last season because my dad was too weak to move, so that was all he could do. You got to watch baseball with him. We would sit there and watch baseball, and he'd go in and out of sleep. And So he loved this team. So, Wow. The fact that you had that time with your dad and that it was something you guys loved, and, and he ends up, even if he's swept up with the, you know, the snacks. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> but listen, he would have thought it was funny. I promise you. He he, because we we brought it up to him, and it was not a deal breaker for him. So, um, uh, you know, it, and uh, and you know, the, the the bulk of his, the most of his ashes went to Penobscot Bay up in Maine, a place where he liked to sail, and he thought it was the most beautiful place he'd ever seen. So. We're not talking about a lot here. But Maybe there's like, a spoonful of Fenway. <laughs> I think that's pretty special. Just a tiny bit. That might not, I, yeah, may, maybe we shouldn't say that publicly. But no, it's already gone. The wind's already blown that away. I guess to have that connection with your dad is pretty special. And, and uh, yeah, I, I always so remember lucky. this series in a different way. You will, yes. And uh, you will too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I was so lucky. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, I, you know, I, I've seen the kind of dad you are it's like it's 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 it, it hit me like what that impact was now that I can look at it kind of in its totality because yeah. it's over um how lucky what a incredibly lucky person I was to have him as my dad you know and and how it makes me want to do that for these kids you know and and I want them to feel that way too yeah yeah well, listen, thank you for doing this. And, bet, and I have to say, as, as humiliating <laughs> as this is. It's fantastic. And as someone in my office said, Sam, you're the only person who can make a bet where either way you get Matt Damon on your show. Ah, there you go. So, well, all you had to do was ask. I will I didn't know way. I was ever invited back because we'd already done it, but I, I, I'll, I'll be your first third time guest if you ever want. Great. What are you doing next week? <laughs> you know where I live. <laughs> No, it's, uh, it, I can't think of a better second-time guest. And uh, thank you for doing this. And you bet. It's great to see you. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> it was my pleasure. Hey, folks, that's our show. You know, as humiliating as it was for me to lose that bet, and as much as I wanted to see Matt sitting there in Dodger blue, it certainly was an opportunity to find out where his love of sports started, and I was so moved by his father's love of baseball and that bond that they shared. That's probably why I love the Dodgers, and it's probably why baseball has endured in this country for so long, because it brings people together. Next year, I hope it brings the Boston Red Sox and the Los Angeles Dodgers again for a rematch. And I will re-up the bet. Because I'm an idiot. But it's also because I believe. I guess I'd rather be an optimist and be wrong than a pessimist and be right. But enough about me. Obviously, you know Matt Damon's career. You know all the work he's done. But I will tell you, it's quite a fun and immersive experience to go back and look at the films he's made throughout his career. It was great to go back and watch The Talented Mr. Ripley and see how well that film holds up. And also, if you haven't seen The Martian since it was in theaters, that one's worth another viewing too. So go spend some time with Matt Damon this weekend. Maybe I will too, and I'll get him to buy me dinner. So we talk on this show a lot about the fact that we are both a television show and a podcast, and a magazine. And if you haven't checked out the television show, this episode with Matt is a perfect excuse to give it a try. Because in addition to being able to watch in high-definition black and white these conversations with these iconic artists, you can see me looking like an idiot in a Red Sox uniform. So if you want to check that out, go to our website, offcamera.com, and check out our monthly subscription to our television show. For only $4.99 a month, you can have access to over 160 episodes to watch on any device as many times as you want in high-definition black and white. It's a great way to take a deep dive into the show, and it also supports what we're doing here. So check that out. And if you're loving the podcast, but you haven't subscribed yet, take a minute and go to iTunes. Subscribe to the show. And while you're there, 
leave us a rating and a review. Every time we get ratings and reviews, it helps other people find the show. So if you love what's happening, take a minute and do that for us. We'd be really appreciative. Another way people can find out about us is through social media. So if you have a guest you want to suggest, or you just want to shout out how much you love Off Camera, you can find us at Off Camera Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Sam Jones Pictures and on Twitter at Sam Jones. You can also send me an email directly. I'm Sam at OffCamera.com. So take a minute and tell the world about what we're doing here. I want to thank everybody that helps us work on the show. We couldn't make this show each week without the hard work of a lot of individuals that come in and stay late and eat food in their offices and generally give us their blood, sweat, and tears to make off-camera. Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson, and Matt Davidson, who, and this is not a joke, had to rescue his poor little poodle from an attack dog on his street and ended up rolling around on the ground, bitten and terrified for his life. We're pulling for you and for Stanley, Matt. See you next time, off camera.